Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. Overnight, Joshua went from the most popular professor at Princeton to a pariah. Whether you agree with what Joshua Katz had to say or not, how is it that he doesn't have a right to say it? All right, well, welcome back to Fill in the Blanks. My guest today has a very interesting background history and is involved in something that I think is going to be very interesting to you as well. Her name is Solveig Lucia Gold. She's a senior research assistant at Princeton's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, a PhD candidate in classics at the University of Cambridge, a native New Yorker, Solveig studied classics at Princeton before going to Cambridge for her master's in philosophy and now her Ph.D. This is a smart individual. Solveig earned her Bachelor of Arts degree in classics from Princeton in 2017. Now, alongside her academic career, she's been an editorial intern at the new Criterion. Today, we're talking about free speech, the effects of cancel culture, and a whole lot more, which we'll get into. So, Solveig, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, I have been listening to a lot of what you have had to say. There have been some things available with meetings that were online with the James Madison group that you spoke at, along with some others. I've listened to it. I actually had it transcribed and went back through and listened to everything that you had to say. This was all brought about by the fact that you're now married to Professor Joshua Katz, correct? That is correct. The very canceled Professor Joshua Katz. Well, currently perhaps canceled <laughs> Professor Joshua Katz. I have to say, I've been shaking my head about this ever since I've been reading about it, listening to it and learning about it. Thank you. So let me just let you tell the story uninterrupted from the beginning. First off, you've been married to Joshua since when? July 17th, 2021. So we are coming up on our first anniversary. We were married in the middle of a lot of this uh, insanity we've been dealing with. Yeah. Let's talk about that insanity. Let me tell people who Joshua Katz is, by the way. He's a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He focuses on higher education, language, culture, the classic tradition, and the humanities broadly defined. A linguist by training, a classicist by profession, and a comparative philologist at heart, Dr. Katz has written widely on the languages, literature, cultures of the ancient, medieval, and modern world. In addition to two co-edited books and many dozens of articles and reviews on classics, linguistics, this is a very dedicated academician. He was a professor at Princeton University. In fact, he was the Coatsen Professor in Humanities, Professor of Classics, and a faculty associate of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, and a tenured professor. So this is a very accomplished individual. He holds a BA in linguistics from Yale, University of Oxford, Harvard. He's just a highly educated, distinguished professor and academician. You've been married to him for about a year. How did y'all meet? When I was a junior in high school applying for college, I sat in on classes at a bunch of different universities, um, uh, including Princeton. And I had been introduced to Joshua by another professor at Princeton, and I was told, you have to take a class with Joshua Katz. He's the best teacher there. 
Um, so I sat in on a class and it was mesmerizing. I had never seen a classroom like his and the students just adored him. Um, and I basically decided I wanted to go to Princeton after sitting in on that class. I was then his uh, student. I took a uh, freshman seminar in Egyptology and hieroglyphs with him. And I took a course on the Greek poet Hesiod uh, during my junior year at Princeton with him. Um, but there was absolutely nothing romantic between us when I was a student. Then I graduated and things eventually changed between us. He was on sabbatical um, in the UK while I was uh, doing an MPhil in the UK. Um, and yeah, things, things changed between us. And uh, here we are married today. At this point, he is no longer a professor at Princeton University. Tell us that story. Right. So this is a long, complicated story. Um, in a sense, it begins uh, July 4th, 2020. And you'll remember what the world was like the summer of 2020. Um, there was a lot of unrest and confusion and reckoning going on. Um, and among the things going on was uh, demand letters um, being issued by students and faculty at universities around the country. This was after George Floyd. Exactly, after George Floyd. And um, the students at Princeton had issued a long list of demands to the university in the name of anti-racism. Um, and shortly thereafter, the faculty members at Princeton issued a long list of demands in the name of anti-racism. These demands were signed by hundreds of Joshua's colleagues. Joshua couldn't really believe that his colleagues had signed on to a letter that looked like this. So on July 8th, 2020, he um, wrote a response and he called it his own Declaration of Independence. Um, and uh, he said that he agreed with some of their demands, such as summer move-in allowances for new faculty members, um, rewarding uh, service done by faculty members, um, and uh, the expansion of an undergraduate fellowship program for um, that specifically uh, encouraged underrepresented minorities to pursue PhDs. Um, but then he vociferously disagreed with others of their demands, um, thinking that some were immoral or uh, discriminatory, some were even in violation of um, the Title VII. And those were things like additional pay and perks for faculty of color, um, or creating a group that could investigate um, racist research and publication by faculty members. Um, and so he disagreed strongly with those particular demands, um, while also, and he thought in a pretty mild-mannered way, you know, saying some of these things are good and some of them were bad. Now, we are pretty certain that uh, this would have caused a firestorm no, no matter what. But the real touch point was the fact that he referred to a long defunct student group um, called the Black Justice League as a small local terrorist organization that made life miserable for the many, including the many black students who disagreed with its uh, demands. That particular phrase was picked up. The media went crazy. Twitter went crazy. Um, students at Princeton went crazy. Again, it's important to remember he was not talking about current students. He was talking about alumni um, several years out of college at this point uh, who had been members of this group that used to go around targeting um, and harassing uh, students on campus and especially Black students who disagreed with them. But that line, as I say, people picked up, they attacked him, and overnight, um, Joshua went from the most popular professor at Princeton to a pariah. And it really was overnight. And as I said, you know, when I arrived at Princeton, everybody said, you have to take a class with Joshua Katz. He's the most legendary professor here. Um, and overnight, nobody would speak to him. Um, and thus began the long saga that has been the last two years for us. Within days, um, his colleagues had issued uh, letters denouncing him. They had, they had posted statements, official statements on the official Classics Department website. The president of Princeton personally denounced Joshua's characterization of the Black Justice League. Um, 
and his friend stopped speaking to him. And then meanwhile, unbeknownst to us, um, student reporters at the Daily Princetonian began digging into his personal life. And this was literally days within all of this happening. And they uncovered um, the fact that he'd had a consensual relationship with a student in the mid-2000s, so over 15 years ago, after eight months of doing their investigative reporting, um, they published an article in February of 2021. And this, of course, reignited the firestorm with everyone calling for Joshua's head. Um, the university said that Joshua had to issue a statement in response to the article, um, or they would issue one for him. And the gist of the statement that he ended up issuing was that, yes, he had had a, a consensual relationship in the mid-2000s, um, and he'd already been punished for it, which is true. Um, this was a relationship that had been brought to the attention of the university uh, in the fall of 2017, and he had immediately confessed to it, um, had uh, been sentenced to a year-long suspension, had taken the year-long suspension without hesitation, but that didn't matter, you know, to... to uh, to many at Princeton and academia, they said, well, a year-long suspension isn't sufficient. Um, and so eventually a second investigation was launched. And <laughs> the result of that, at the end of this long two-year saga, was that Joshua was uh, fired at the end of uh, this last school year. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Okay, well, let me ask a few questions here. In 2006... He had a relationship, a consensual relationship with a student. Correct. And this was reported in fall of 2017. Correct. It was investigated, and he was given a one-year suspension without pay. That is correct. And then he was reinstated in the academic year 2019. Correct. Okay, so this happened in 06, 11 years later. It came to the university's attention. They adjudicated this, gave him a year suspension without pay, then apparently determined that he was not a threat to students and returned him to the classroom. Absolutely. Okay. And so in 2019, 2020, 2021, he resumed his teaching that's correct. Although he was, um, while the second investigation was going on, uh, he was placed on paid administrative leave. So he was not teaching during the 2021 school year. But in 2019 and 2020, he was teaching. 19 and 20, he was teaching. Okay. Yeah. Then he made the statements in an article, a Declaration for Independence by a Princeton professor. Yeah. And he did that in 2020. Correct. And that's when all hell broke loose. Correct. So they started investigating a complaint that had already been adjudicated. That is correct. That's what we call double jeopardy. Be that as it may, this is a university policy. Mm -hmm. This isn't a Title IX violation. That's it wasn't correct. a criminal violation. Correct. So no criminality here, no Title IX here. Nope. And no one has ever accused him of harassment or anything like that. This is, it's entirely, um, you know, a, all of, this all comes down to a consensual relationship with an undergraduate at a time when I should say consensual relationships with undergraduates were permitted unless the student was, um, your student at that time. And in this case, the student was his student. All right. So he didn't object. He didn't appeal. He didn't resist. And so what he wrote at the time had to do with this petition 
to do these certain things with black faculty members, correct? Yes, exactly. And he voiced his opinion. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. And he referred to them as a small local terrorist organization. So he was referring to a group of, yeah, to a, a group of alumni um, that, that was separate from the people who wrote the letter. Right. He was referring to this small group of alumni. He said they created problems for students. And he said it was picked up when President Eisgruber wrote his letter. He, in fact, quoted that, but he didn't include the entire quote, as I understand. He took out the part about also created a lot of problems for black students. Yes, I, I, I believe that is true in his initial um, statement. What you may be thinking of, though, is that uh, in the fall of 2021, as part of the mandatory freshman orientation um, for new students at Princeton, um, all students were forced to watch a video um, on Princeton's history with racism. And as part of this mandatory viewing, they were also expected um, to look at a, an official university website, um, the Known and Be Heard website, uh, which goes through, it, it presents a gallery of Princeton's racist past, or what they consider to be Princeton's racist past. And towards the end of this gallery is a little section on Professor Joshua Katz. Um, and he is presented as the latest instantiation of Princeton's long history of racism, you know, <laughs> put up against all sorts of unsavory characters from the past. Um, and he and and they take his quotation um, from his piece, this Declaration of Independence, and they doctor the quotation. They deliberately doctor the quotation. So they remove from the quotation the phrase, including the many black students. So the original quotation ran, um, small, uh, the Black Justice League was a small local terrorist organization that made life miserable for the many, including the many black students who disagreed with its demands or something like that. And they removed including the many black students. And this was clearly a deliberate um, misquotation on their part. And again, this was mandatory viewing for the entire freshman class. So he was part of freshman orientation. His story was part of it. Correct. Yes. Wow. So then you have to look at everything that's gone on in the last year and you have to say, well, is this really a, you know, could he possibly have had an experienced due process um, in his second investigation when, you know, the university is meanwhile defaming him as a racist to the entire freshman class? It makes you wonder. So when they reinvestigated this complaint, were there new allegations had been made? Yeah. So in 2018 or 2017, um, it, the the relationship had been brought to the attention of the university by an anonymous third party, or rather anonymous to us, I assume not anonymous to the university. Um, but it was not the, the woman and it was not Joshua, obviously. The university repeatedly approached the woman in question and asked her if she would like to participate in their investigation. Um, she repeatedly declined. She did not want anything to do with the investigation. In fact, she said repeatedly to Joshua, um, because they, they had remained in touch periodically over the years, um, she said specifically to him that she wanted to maintain her privacy. She felt like the whole investigation was a violation of her privacy and she wanted nothing to do with it. Fast forward to 2021, uh, the Daily Princetonian report comes out. Simultaneously to this, the woman finds out that he's engaged to marry me. Um, and she decides to come forward. Um, and so she then issued her own complaint um, in the early spring, I guess, of uh, 2021. And that was what launched the second investigation. Okay. Then, as far as the complaint concerning his relationship with this woman, it had been adjudicated. 
he had served whatever consequences they had assigned to him. He had been reinstated, was back in the classroom in 19 and 20, and then he made these statements. This digging goes into what had happened before. The case is reopened, re-adjudicated, and that was the reason that was given for him being fired. Exactly. Yeah. And they, you know, they concocted new reasons to fire him. Um, you know, of course, with with another person now participating in the investigation, there were details that came out that, you know, that they had not been aware of before. Um, but, you know, that's not how due process works. She had declined to participate in the past. Um, and she had her chance to tell her side of the story. She chose not to take it. And she only decided to do so, you know, to come forward again um, in the light of a very complicated uh, string of events. Joshua had no problem confessing immediately to the relationship in uh, 2018 when he, when he was investigated in the first place. Um, but this time around, the allegations against him were simply untrue. Um, and so we fought back hard. Um, and the university seemed completely uninterested in every in every piece of evidence he provided um, to to counter the narrative um, as it was presented by the woman and her friends uh, in 2021. Well, here's my question: ignoring the merits of what the petition had asked to do, or the demands, however you want to describe it, about more sabbatical for Black faculty members, higher pay, safe spaces for students on campus, whatever, whether people listening to this agree with that or don't agree with that. One of the things that I ran across when I started investigating this was President Eisgruber of Princeton had spoken out a lot about Princeton being kind of a bastion for free speech. That's correct. Yes. He takes great pride in this. And has actually been acknowledged as someone that talks about this a lot and holds a high standard there. So whether you agree with what Joshua Katz had to say or not, how is it that he doesn't have a right to say it? I guess the, the, the counter argument to that is he did have the right to say it and he did he did say it. Um, these days, cancel culture doesn't work the way you might expect it to. Right. So it's not as simple as um, you said this. So you're going to be fired for saying this. Right. They, they can't do that. They know they can't do that. Um, so instead, they find other pretexts for for punishing people. Um, and this has happened at places around the country. You know, our, our lawyer represents a lot of professors in the, in this situation. And, um, you wouldn't believe how often when universities can't punish you for the, for your speech, they find other ways to punish you. Um, most people have a skeleton in their closet, um, which is probably why most people aren't willing to speak up at the moment when they do have controversial points of view. Um, but you know, there there are lots of people on Princeton's campus. We know many of them who have those skeletons. Um, and Princeton doesn't go around investigating them. There's only one reason why Joshua has been reinvestigated and ultimately fired, and that is because he spoke in 2020. I think it's it's as certain as it can be that none of this would have happened were it not for um his uh his article in July of 2020. He wrote an article in May of 2022 in the Wall Street Journal. And the article was entitled, Princeton Fed Me to the Cancel Culture Mob. Yes. May 24, 2022, a Wall Street Journal. And one of the things he said is, nearly two years ago, I wrote in these pages, I survived cancellation at Princeton. I was wrong. The university where I taught for nearly a quarter of a century and which promoted me to the tenured ranks in 2006 has revoked my tenure and dismissed me. Whoever you are and whatever your beliefs, this should terrify you. 
The issues around my termination aren't easy to summarize. What is nearly impossible to deny, though, Princeton does deny it, is that I have been subjected to cultural double jeopardy with the university re-litigating a long-past offense. He goes on to say he made a grave mistake, admitted the mistake as soon as he was investigated for it, and served his time without complaint. He says, for better or worse, I was the first on campus to articulate some of these opinions, publicly criticizing a number of anti-racist demands. He puts that in quotes, anti-racist. Some of them clearly racist and illegal. This got a lot of national attention. The New York Times summed it up pretty well. Shame on you, referring to Princeton. The disgraceful firing of Joshua T. Katz. I think it was pretty transparent what happened here. Yeah. Is this something that his colleagues have moved their position on, or is he still treated as a pariah? (laughs) Well, you know, we wouldn't know because most of them won't speak to us, and they, they haven't spoken to him since July of 2020. As you know, as I keep saying, he was. You, you wouldn't believe how popular he was. Um, this is the, the thing about Joshua is the fact that he spoke up in July of 2020 was really out of character for him. Um, he has been a library rat his entire life. Um, and if there was one thing I didn't like about him, actually, is I thought he was too go along, get along. And I wanted him to, you know, I kept pushing him. I'd say, you know, why don't you ever speak up in faculty meetings when you disagree with the crazy things being said? And he said, oh, you know, I, whatever. Um, he was just a nice guy. Everybody liked him. Um, and I think it's actually because he's such a nice guy that he's been uh, treated so terribly. You know, there there's certain professors on campus that people expect to say controversial things. Um, and those people tend not to be canceled because they, you know, you, you don't expect that you're going to get someone like that to apologize. Um, but when Joshua spoke up, everyone thought he was they could get him to apologize the number one rule, though, of cancel culture is do not apologize. Even if you do feel sorry for what you said, don't apologize because any apology you make will be used against you. And that's been evidenced most re- recently in the Ilya Shapiro case. If you've been following that, we can, we can talk about that as well. Um, but, you know, I think his colleagues could not believe that mild-mannered, nice Joshua Katz um, had spoken up as he did. And they just stopped speaking to him. Um, so, you know, there is exactly one current member of his department who has spoken to us in the last two years. Um, and again, all of this was about the the piece in Quillette. None of this was about the consensual relationship. I mean, most of his colleagues knew about the consensual relationship and didn't necessarily seem to have a problem with that. Their problem was with his uh, his his words on, on anti-racism. That was the one article in Quillette. Correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, we can count on two hands the number of colleagues at Princeton who um, speak to us. Well, Edward Yingling, co-founder of Princetonians for Free Speech, reportedly said, if a faculty member or student says something that contradicts our orthodoxy, we will get you. If not for what you said, then by twisting your language, by using the extensive resources of the university to shame you before the student body, and by investigating your personal life for years past. Now, he's not saying that. He's saying that's what the message is from Princeton based on what has happened here. Absolutely. I want to be clear. That's not Edward Yingling saying that. He's (laughs) saying this is the message that Princeton is sending by their actions. And it it is the message, unfortunately. And that's why, you know, there there are a lot of um, free speech advocacy groups popping up, including Princetonians for Free Speech, which I am on the board of as well. Um, and, you know, those are important groups because they, for one thing, you know, they, they, they get alumni to speak up more, um, and universities need to be hearing from their alumni. Um, they need to, they need to, to, to feel the pain of what they're doing, um, with their annual giving. Um, and, you know, money speaks louder than any, uh, tweet will. Also, I think these free speech groups are, are doing the Lord's work on campus because they're they're showing students that they're alumni who will support them if if this, if a student says something um, out of line with the orthodoxy on campus and you know I, I since I'm now back at Princeton as a postdoc 
um, I have some interaction with the the students on campus. Um, and campus climate has changed a lot since I graduated. Um, it's, it's difficult to overstate how much it has changed since I graduated. Something you said in the James Madison, I think it was an actual meeting that was held. You said, don't give up on Princeton yet. You still hold out hope that there's some way to find that compass again. I want to believe that. Um, I loved Princeton. To me, it was the most magical place. I had the most magical four years. I've always held various contrarian viewpoints, you know, for the most part conservative, but not entirely. So I'm, I'm hard to pin down politically, but I never felt any hostility from my peers or my professors or the administration when I was a student. Um, on the contrary, I, I felt celebrated um, and appreciated. And all of that has changed in the five years since I graduated. And, and so, you know, I, I loved Princeton so much and I don't want to see it die. I also, though, I don't know what the alternative is. And there are a lot of us alumni working behind the scenes to try to, you know, rescue the place. Um, I think, as, as I said on that panel, you know, I resist the rhetoric of burning the place down in large part because that's the rhetoric of the other side. Um, there are a lot of people on the other side of this issue who are saying, oh, well, Princeton is irredeemably systemically racist. And so we should tear the place down. In fact, that was part of the rhetoric used in the uh, freshman orientation uh, video that that also defamed Joshua. Um, so, you know, I, I resist that rhetoric. I don't want to see Princeton torn down. I believe in institutions like Princeton. Um, I think institutions are the one thing that, you know, transcend the the follies of any given time or generation. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't want to see Princeton destroyed, but I also think we have to hold it to the fire if it's ever going to, uh, if it's not going to burn down, we have to hold it to the fire. Yeah. Well, is this an institutional failure or is this a small group of very loud activists that are driving an agenda there? I know that oftentimes we get a group with an agenda that intimidates and is loud, but then I read what Icegruber has written and said, has he caved to the mob or is this something that really permeates the value system of the faculty and administration at the university? I think it's hard to say. There's such a climate of fear on campus right now that no one will give you an honest answer to that question. Um, you know, when hundreds of Joshua's colleagues signed that letter of demands in the name of anti-racism in July of 2020, um, at the time, we didn't know how many of them actually believed it, how many of them um, we're just trying to be nice and wanted to, you know, sign on to the letter as a sign of solidarity and allyship. Um, you know, we thought, OK, it's possible that some didn't even read the letter. <laughs> um, but but the person who's set, who said it best, actually, is is Mark Bauerlein. He wrote a piece in uh, for, a, for a journal called American Greatness about Joshua's case. Um, and he talked about the kind of character um that succeeds in academia, right? And most professors tend to be people who are extremely smart, um, have, used, have been used to succeeding their whole lives, but also succeed by not really ruffling too many feathers and by trying to get along with people. They depend on peer review. They depend on peer evaluations for everything that they accomplish. Um, so they need their peer support. And so they're unlikely to say or do anything that is deemed, you know, unpopular or controversial. And I think he hit the nail on the head with that. Um, so when you look at the Princeton faculty right now, you think, okay, well, how many of you actually believe, you know, ag agree with all of the demands that have been issued, agree with all the changes happening on campus? Like, for instance, Joshua's own department uh, eliminated the requirement for undergraduate majors in classics to take even a single semester of Latin or Greek, um, which is sort of a surprising thing for a classics department to do. Um, you know, how many people actually agree with these, these things? 
How many of these people actually believe that Joshua Katz is a horrible racist predator or whatever? And how many of them are just keeping their heads down because um, they're afraid, because they, they just want to stay in the library and do their research and, you know, publish a book and, and not, you know, this is the other thing, right? When, when you're canceled, like Joshua has been, it's not just that you lose your job. Um, it's that your research as a, as a scholar becomes unsightable. So his life's work, and Joshua is a brilliant linguist who's written on so many things, not just, you know, classical linguistics. He's also, he got his start doing Native American linguistics. So he's, he's written about languages all over the world. Um, and he's now, his, this, all of this research is fundamentally untouchable and no one will cite him or put him in a footnote ever again. Um, you know, his, his advisees have purged his name from their acknowledgements. Um, so if you're, if you're a scholar who cares mostly just about contributing knowledge um, and, you know, doing your little niche work, why would you want to stick your neck out um, and, uh, you know, get involved in any of this stuff? And we hear constantly from tenured professors who say, oh, I, you know, I agree with you. I wish I could say something, but I, I just can't. And you think, God, you're a tenured professor. You have all the protection in the world. But, um, well, you think you have all the protection in the world unless, uh, you know, unless you got a skeleton in your closet. Well, but that's the point. How can you have a moral compass if everything is self-referential? If you look at everything saying, well, I'm going to put myself in harm's way, so I'm not going to speak the truth. I'm not going to say what I really think. Who is Professor Daniel Padil Peralta? Yeah, Daniel Padilla Peralta. So he um, graduated from Princeton in, I believe, 2006. Um, he has an amazing uh, life story. Um, he was um, an illegal immigrant to America um, from the Dominican Republic. He grew up um, in a homeless shelter in New York City. Um, he was discovered by a volunteer in the homeless shelter for his bright mind. He was reading some big book and the, and the volunteer was impressed. Um, the volunteer ended up... Uh, getting him into uh, collegiate, which is the top boys school in New York, if not the country. Um, and from there, Danielle went to uh, Princeton, Oxford, um, Stanford, and now he is back as a professor of classics in Joshua's department or Joshua's former department at Princeton. Well, on June 14th, Free Black Thought tweeted the following. But was Katz, in fact, a racist? Hardly. One of his persecutors, a colleague, Professor Daniel Padilla Peralta, who happens to be black, wrote in his 2016 memoir, Undocumented, about his undergrad experience at Princeton when Katz had been his mentor and advocate. Katz wasn't fired for racism, but on a pretext. He was fired for reinvestigation of a case of sexual misbehavior, consensually sleeping with an undergrad for which he had been investigated and punished with a year's unpaid leave in 2018. So, double jeopardy. So, Joshua was Danell's professor and mentor um, when Danell was a student. Danell, in his memoir, describes how Joshua was the first person at Princeton that he confided in about his undocumented status. Um, and this was because Danell, like hundreds, if not thousands of Princeton students over the years, have come to Joshua in their times of need. Um, Joshua has been there to support, you know, students going through mental health crises. Um, he counseled a student through an unplanned pregnancy. Um, he literally directly intervened to save two students from suicide. Um, one called him from a hotel room uh, and Joshua was able to rescue him. I mean, this Joshua's just been that kind of person. He's not just, he has never been just a, a professor standing at a chalkboard. He has been a real mentor and, and support system for students who've needed it. Um, and one of those students was Danell, who confided in Joshua about his undocumented status. And Joshua then worked to make sure he went to speak to the administration and got a lawyer. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. He was able to become an American citizen and is now a professor of classics at Princeton. And Joshua was his great advocate and uh, supporter through much of that, um, through much of that journey. Um, in 
July of 2020, when Joshua published his piece in Quillette, Danelle then spoke about how Joshua's, quote, flagrant racism speaks for itself. Um, so, you know, the, the same guy that Joshua had helped get citizenship was now accusing um, Joshua after all these years of, of being a racist. Um, and yeah, Danelle is one of many people who won't speak to Joshua. Uh, Danelle was one of the authors of the original faculty letter um, with all of those demands in July of 2020. Um, so Joshua and Danelle have ended up on, on opposite sides of, of uh, I guess, the culture wars, as it were. Um, Danelle and I have had our own uh, spats as well in uh, the summer of 2017. I, I published a piece in the New Criterion um, talking about Western civilization, and Danelle penned a response to my piece, and then I ended up having a response to his, and there was a whole exchange back and forth there as well. Um, yeah, so Danelle has positioned himself as um, the, the spokesperson for burning down the field of classics and burning down Princeton. Um, he, loves, he loves that rhetoric of burning things down. So how has this affected you? <laughs> well, thank you, doctor. Um, it's, it's been a wild ride. It's been a crazy two years. Uh, you know, I, I'm really tough and thick skinned. And I also have, I, I have the, the, the fortune of never having been popular in the way that Joshua was. Um, I think I've been pretty outspoken about my political beliefs, whatever they may be, um, my whole life. And as you mentioned at the top, yeah, I, I'm a native New Yorker. Um, and, you know, growing up as even somewhat conservative in New York means you kind of grow thick skin pretty quickly. Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like I was made for this moment and I, I don't feel, you know, I think I've been able to handle it pretty well. Um, the hard part is just seeing what it's done to Joshua. Um, and, you know, overnight, the, the man I love became a shell of his former self. Um, you know, his, all of his friends just stopped talking to him. Um, and he really didn't know how to handle that. I mean, he expected pushback. We expected something, but he didn't expect that these people would just never say a word to him again, especially, and I've written about this, but, you know, we had sent out our, our wedding save the dates days before um, the Quillette piece. And, uh, you know, there was one of Joshua's colleagues was not only invited to the wedding, he was considering asking her to be in the wedding as, you know, a groomsmaid or something like that. Um, yeah, and she said nothing for weeks. And then she finally wrote a short little message that, you know, expressed her disappointment in him. And they haven't spoken since. So that's, it's, it's, it's just been, and it, it's been the steady stream of, of nasty tweets and his life's work being destroyed when, as I say, you know, if you're, once you're a canceled professor, no one will publish you. In fact, the Society for Classical Studies, um, which is the major uh, organization to which all professional classicists in the, in the United States belong, um, the Society for Classical Studies retweeted an article the other day that advocates for never publishing anything by Joshua ever again. Um, you know, so this is the kind of climate we're in. And, and fortunately, Joshua stays off Twitter. Um, I think that's sort of necessary for his sanity. Um, I stay on Twitter because I actually, I feed off of the anger, unfortunately. But Well, how is he doing with this? What does he do with his time? How is he handling it emotionally? Especially since the second investigation began, um, it's felt like we've had this sort of Damocles over our heads. Um, you know, every day we were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. It was, you know, is there going to be a letter from the university demanding that he, you know, go submit to another interview, another another, uh, you know, interrogation for another however many hours. I mean, it was just nonstop. And there was always the fear of another media storm or something like that. At least now that he's been fired, there's a sense of finality and almost even some freedom. Um, you know, nothing was worse than the waiting and the worrying about how this was all going to play out. And, you know, we've been extremely gratified um, by... The, the media response, because, you know, it's, it's a messy case. And 
obviously Joshua does really regret having a consensual relationship with a student and and that's embarrassing to have your personal life aired to the world like that. Um, so we were terrified of how this was all going to play out. Um, but, you know, blessedly, I think people really do understand what's going on here. That's been a huge help. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't, well, I would say I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemies. I do find myself experiencing schadenfreude these days when, when uh, people who've been nasty to Joshua get canceled themselves. But no, I, I don't wish this on anybody, actually. I think it's just awful to go through something like this. And Joshua does not have, you know, particularly thick skin. And yeah, he's, I mean, not to put a, too fine a point on it, he's been like deeply depressed for the last few years. Um, and I, I think understandably so. I mean, find me, you know, as I say, I think I'm unusual in this respect, but I think most people would never be able to handle something like this. It's, it's just awful. Is he getting any professional help? <sighs> you know, one of the tricky things here is, it's actually, maybe maybe you can help me with this. It's actually really hard for canceled people to find sympathetic shrinks. Um, we've talked about this a lot with various people, you know, that they're, um, the, the whole profession of psychology is itself gone pretty woke. Um, and so, you know, you have a hard time actually finding a therapist you feel you can trust when you're going through something like this, um, especially in the town of Princeton, I should say. Um, you know, and we've we've had some leads here and there. And yeah, he's had, I mean, so he, he's had university mandated therapy um, or counseling as a result of his uh, initial of the first investigation and uh, the this, the year long suspension there, he had university mandated counseling and that helped. And um, he's become a Christian and he he talks to priests. <laughs> he likes talking to priests um, in a sense because he actually he likes to be held accountable for his actions and not just, uh, you know, told that everything's OK. Um, but, you know, no, I've been trying to get him into proper therapy. Um, but it's as I say, it's it's actually really hard. And we've we've talked to the most canceled people all know each other. And we've talked about this a great deal with a lot of people, but how, how hard it is to find professional help when you're going through something like this. And you do have a lawsuit pending, correct? We are considering all legal options. There, there is nothing. Well, we we have a lawsuit pending, but not against Princeton at the moment. Joshua, uh, he had been appointed a delegate for this group um, in the summer of 2020, and then when he wrote his Quillette piece, they removed him as a delegate and purged his name from from their website and all materials having to do with it. And so there was a lawsuit there, and then we are considering our our legal options when it comes to Princeton as well. It's a lot to think about whether you actually want to pursue a legal action in a case like this. Of course. So what does the future hold for you and for Joshua? Where does this end? Is this a hamster wheel? Does it just keep going around for him because he's been blacklisted? Where does this end? Where does it go for you? Fortunately, we have better friends than the friends we lost. Um, we have great family and and we do have job offers or he has job offers. I actually am still an employee of Princeton at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, Joshua, if, if this is this is airing in July, I believe. So at that point, I, I believe it'll be public knowledge that he is uh, uh, joining the American Enterprise Institute full time um, as as a, a fellow there. So he will be able to write about whatever he wants. Um, he'll have. You know, free reign to to continue doing research, academic research, but also mostly focusing on uh, how to fix the problems that are in our world today, and especially in academia. So, you know, nobody knows universities better than Joshua does. He, um, uh, his father was a professor of chemistry at Columbia. Joshua grew up in elite universities, and that's the world he knows. And he he knew them from the inside. He was on every committee. He uh, he had no free time because all he did was just run around helping people at the university all day long. So if anyone can tell you, you know, what's going on in universities and, and how to how maybe to fix them, Joshua's probably your guy. So I think that's, you know, he's it's a it's a major pivot for him. Um, but, you know, even if he wanted to uh, stay in the academy, as they say, you know, it, Nobody will ever cite his research ever again. 
I mean, I, I hope that that's not true. I hope people will cite him eventually. But at the moment, you know, he's such a pariah. He, he can barely attend, you know, any conference, any kind of activity that, that academics usually do. Well, I, of course, am biased, but I really hope that he does get some professional help and have the opportunity to not only vent, but problem solve some of this. The worst situation you can be in is to get in a situation of learned helplessness, where you feel like there's nothing you can do to change your situation. Once you get that perceptual set, then hopelessness is not far behind, and things that follow are never good. I've read a lot of what he's done and some of the things he's written, and this is a cognitively agile, cognitively active, driven individual, and for him to stymie that would be a terrible thing for him and a terrible thing for the world. I agree. So I would really hope that he would work his way out of that because he's not really canceled until he decides he's canceled. That is so true. That is very true. I mean, it really is. And that's easy to say, but when you've been fired and they won't cite you and they won't hire you and they won't this, they won't that, you can say, well, yeah, okay. So you can tell yourself whatever you want, but the world still has excluded you. But you can always find a way back in. And I'm telling you, with this cancel culture running amok, they're now getting to the point of canceling each other. Somebody's going to have to put that all back together. And he has the bandwidth to figure out how to do that. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. Um, and I, you know, day by day, as I say, he's he's doing better now than he has been. Um, but it's it's been a really long two years and he has complete uh, agoraphobia in Princeton, not not in other places, but he literally won't leave our house. I mean, he'll, he'll occasionally walk, you know, in the direction away from town, <laughs> but he, he just won't go into town at the moment. It's 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 horrifying. I can understand his logic in that, but I hope you will give him my sentiment and tell him I, I would like to meet him and say hello and. Yeah. And look forward to doing that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, he'll really appreciate that. Well, you've been great in talking to us today. I think you've articulated this very, very well. And when he said to those reading that article, you should be terrified, enough's enough and too much is too much. And this is a good example of too much. I hope people that are listening to this, do your own research on this. You know, Google the name read the accounts, make up your own mind. I think you'll hear what he's saying. You should be terrified. Yeah. It's gone too far. It's got to stop. I thank you for taking the time to articulate this, and I hope we've had a useful discussion about it. Very useful, and thank you to you and to your listeners. Dobay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.